Professor Corser, thank you so much for joining us. Matt, thanks for having me. Why don't we start off with uh, your background? You know, where'd you start off, the arc of your career so far, and uh, what you're doing now? Sure. Um, well, I come by an interest in Congress, honestly, because uh, I started out, uh, really my first real internship was working on Capitol Hill. This was uh, when I was an undergraduate. I, I did my college's uh, DC semester program. And so I spent, you know, 40, 50, sometimes 60 hours a week uh, working in Congress and was really fascinated and really, I was working on the House side and, uh, you know, got to see a bit of the Senate, but I really fell in love with the institution, um, you know, from the, the building itself and its history to, you know, how, what it represents in terms of democracy and also sort of the, the, the complexities of the ways in which, you know, interests and representation play out under that dome um, is something that personally and professionally, you know, stayed with me. Um, and I, I came back after I graduated and worked briefly on Capitol Hill before um, uh, I should, I, I'll, I guess I'll fess up an ill-fated run for the state legislature in my home state uh, as a very young man. And then thereafter, I went to the University of Virginia to get a PhD in government. Uh, I wrote my PhD dissertation on um, the role that American political parties have played as essential institutions for mobilizing support um, for um, um, and informing basically, you know, how democracy works. You know, there's sort of the, the glue that, that keeps public opinion together and makes representation possible in a meaningful way. That was the conclusion that I came to. And also talking about the tensions between party reform and democracy, that um, there have been some well-intentioned, some less well-intentioned attempts at party reform that have had uh, variable effects on representation. And I sort of tried to lead towards a conclusion about, you know, sort of the proper role of parties and, and party reform in American democracy. And then thereafter, I taught at a number of institutions, um, Boston College, Washington and Lee University. I ended up teaching um, American politics for a while at uh, uh, actually Science Po, which is uh, the French university focused on political science. I taught in Lyon there, and I also helped to um, lead a think tank called the Legatum Institute in London. I was the uh, program manager and a, and a fellow there for uh, some time. And then in 2014, I came to Claremont McKenna College uh, to found what eventually became our policy lab. And so that's what I do now. I'm the co-director of the policy lab. I teach uh, public policy. I also lead various research projects, including ones related to congressional reform. So can you talk a little bit more about Policy Lab? So what is it? What is its intention? And how many students do you do you, you know, process and where do they go afterwards? Yeah. So this is in a way, this is a way in which I'm bringing what I've learned and experienced both in graduate school and in professional politics together in the classroom. Um, uh, it, the, the focus is experiential learning. Um, I co-teach the class with a colleague in the econ department, who's also the co-director of the lab, Eric Helland. We take a multidisciplinary approach. He's an economist. I'm a political scientist. And we work with 
real world partners in Washington, D.C. In fact, one uh, one of whom you've, you've interviewed in the past, Kevin Kosar at the American Enterprise Institute, has been a partner for us on projects relating to earmarks and also elections recently. But we've had a variety of different partners at Brookings or the Bipartisan Policy Center. Um, Essentially, the conceit is that you know we are teaching policy writing, um, policy analysis, but we're also spending time to have our students work directly with a client, supervised by us, so they can work on real-world um, policy issues. And it's a, I think it's a, a, a the future of policy education, where we're bringing together teaching and research into the classroom. It's a, a very resource-intensive um, teaching uh, model. But it's proved, I think, just in our short time, we're when you're just ending year five of the policy lab. Um, you know, we we look at our students and the success that they have after our graduate, after they graduate and go to Washington or or, or uh, policy schools or PhD programs, and um, you know, it's like they're shot out of a cannon. They're really ready to get to work. They know how the policy process works. They know how to write. They know how to communicate. They also know how to. Um, um, take a, uh, a problem and define it into a research question and come up with a tractable answer. So I feel like we're, we're making great progress and, and are, are helping to, uh, to uh, lead the way in some ways in uh, policy education. Excellent. So let's talk about your sort of research side of, of what you do. Um, you know, what are the kind of the broad, what's the broad outline of your interest areas. We'll start with that and then we'll dig down into some of the details as they relate to Congress. But let's start off with your broad areas of interest. Sure. So, um, you know, dating back to graduate school, I've always had an interest in American political parties. And I was uh, very interested and wrote um, a few articles related to the rise of the Tea Party movement around 2010, 2011, um, both in terms of, you know, what they meant in terms of party reform or party change or what effect it could have on the Republican Party in terms of agenda setting, but also what it had to say about mobilization and um, sort of the ability of Americans to coalesce in an organized fashion around a political agenda because the, the Tea Party movement was so inchoate at first. The question was, well, where is this going? And we could talk more about that if you wanted. Um, at the policy lab, you know, the last five or six years or so, we've taken on a variety of different projects, some of which are, you know, I'm have, have come more interested in, um, you know, transportation and housing issues, I think, are something sort of, if you want to think about kind of standard hard policy topics, um, very interested in issues relating to both of those. Housing is, is and transportation are particularly critical in the area that I live here in Southern California. Um, and there are a lot of sort of um, difficult government failures and policy failures that are either unacknowledged or, have, or um, are acknowledged and people don't really want to work on them that lead to persistent difficulties such as homelessness and housing prices and, and of course, traffic here. So, um, but I would say that, you know, over the last three or four years, I have become more interested in government reform, um, specifically related to, to Congress and elections. So in terms of my own personal remit, I would say that, um, yeah, government reform at the federal level is something that's really on my mind, um, trying to improve institutions in Congress, um, thinking about ways in which 
polarization has helped to change incentives and perhaps deform um, ways in which uh, federal institutions were at least intended to work, or even just a you know a, maybe a more objective um, you know attempting a more objective look at the way these these institutions should work to serve the public interest and how polarization is is changing that. Um, I led uh, a research group that put out an edited volume 2015, just, just before uh, the Trump election, trying to take on this question of, you know, the role that, again, you know, uh, sort of, you know, we knew there was lots of polarization even in 2015. Um, the question was, you know, what was this about? Did this really boil down to some definable regime level kind of constitutional disagreement, you know, uh, that was dividing our country, not mere policy issues about, you know, uh, how much income tax you should pay, or, you know, are gun rights legal, you know, and to what extent, but rather, you know, are there deeper fundamental issues about the Constitution. And we could talk more about that. Um, and anyway, so that that's kind of led me into congressional reform, and talking particularly about the First Amendment. Uh, uh, to the Constitution, but also Article One, specifically, how does Article One um, shape the institution of Congress? How are ways in which we can refer back to Article One um, and Congress's uh, prerogatives, um, either um, in terms of forming itself as an institution, like you know how it's supposed to budget, for example, how it's supposed to spend money, um, but also how it relates its powers and separation of powers to the executive. And again, how polarization is affecting and changing the dynamics of, of Congress. Um, so that that's so broadly speaking, those are kind of that's kind of where I got here and, and what I'm really interested in right now. So let's dig into a little bit more of the money side of things, which is, I think, some of your specialty recently, uh, particularly on the earmarks side. So I know you've done some work on that uh, with Kevin and others. Uh, can you talk through, you know, your perspective on earmarks? You know what? You know, how did it start? Why did they go into you know the dark ages and and, and talk, talk about their return? Sure, it's it's a, it's a long tale, and I think uh, people probably most people who know something about earmarks would probably react to it negatively right away because one of the problems with studying earmarks or talking about them is that they have such a, a negative association, um, political association. Um, you know people are familiar with the topic pork barrel politics. And it's kind of uh, axiomatic in Washington that, you know, one of the functions of Congress people is to quote, bring home the bacon. That, um, you know, there's an attempt by, you know, every congressperson and Senator to bring back resources to their districts. And, um, you know, this, this, I think can be looked at in two different ways. One, unfortunately, I think the, the more dominant conversation about, you know, distributing resources or the distri distribution of resources, federal resources to different districts and states, rather than being looked at from a kind of like institutional necessity, you know, Article One necessity, I think it's tend to, tended to be looked at from the sort of the, the most outrageous examples of, you know, what could be called waste, fraud and abuse. Um, there are certain groups in Washington, you know, dating back to the 70s and 80s that have made earmarks and earmarking a, you know, a particular focus. Uh, you know, the Congressional Pig Book, for example, was a catalog of all the different earmarks that Congress people put out that, 
you know, this, this group felt were wasteful in some way. Um, so there, there were a lot of assumptions there. One is that earmarks were mostly waste, um, that it was an invitation to abuse. Uh, and probably the one that, that stuck in most people's minds was that it, it cost a lot of money. That, you know, when you think about rising federal spending, you know, since World War II, one of the common associations that are made is that, well, it must be those earmarks, right? These, these fat cats, uh, you know, feather bedding with congressional or with federal dollars, uh, blowing our budget with a lot of wasteful spending. It must be those earmarks. Um, so, you know, this has always been sort of baked in the cake, right? This has always been a kind of tension that constituents and, and interest groups have had um, with the, again, the sort of actual, I would say, story about, you know, art, uh, Congress's Article One responsibilities um, to basically, you know, decide about, you know, what, it, what are the priorities that the country has in terms of funding and how do we best meet those needs? You know, there, there will be no spending from the Treasury unless there is an appropriation made by Congress. This is an Article One, and it's a primary duty and responsibility of Congress. In fact, you know, when you think about, for instance, uh, the way in which Congress and the executive deal with one another, I mean, this really is a way in which, you know, Congress calls the shots. Uh, and it was, you know, if, if Congress doesn't like something that the president is doing, they can defund him or her. Um, it's a it's a, a fundamental power. Um, if you go back to the founding, you know, it, it may be something of a, a fig leaf now. It doesn't have, you know, too much meaning. But I think in spirit, it's important to remember that, for instance, all spending bills must originate in the House of Representatives. You know, this is kind of a moot point because the Senate has to ultimately agree on the same legislation. But the concern of the founders is, you know, spending and taxation were such fundamental government powers that they should have the closest reach to uh, individual constituents and voters, that people, that Congress should be very reactive to what people think about spending and taxation, and therefore bills should originate in the House, and that people should be very close to the representative on these issues. Um, so, you know, it, again, it's a, it's a fundamental Article I power. Um, and, you know, since the, the beginning of the Republic, you know, you can find essentially what are earmarks in even the first Congress. Um, so it's, it's been something that has, uh, it's been a, something like a glue that's, that's held together um, a lot of disparate interests that have to do with, you know, institutional responsibilities of individual representatives and, and senators in Congress. So um, let's, you know, let's speed up the story from the beginning of the Republic to about 20 years ago. Um, the, you know, there, there was a number of, there's, you know, like so many things, there was a, a confluence of events um, that sort of helped to undermine um, earmarking in Congress. First off, um, you know, there was, there were some real abuses and, and I would say they, they were unusual and rare, but they were definite. Um, probably top of that list would be Randy Duke Cunningham, who was a representative from the San Diego area, a Republican, um, who he was a defense appropriator. And essentially what he was doing is a kind of pay for play where he would offer a kind of menu to defense industry types to say, you know, it'll cost you this 
in terms of money to him in order to get an earmark that you want for your particular industry. And this was uncovered and he went to jail. Um, there was also some lobby groups um, around this time um, that essentially were trading in kind of earmark influence, you know, trying to use their, their influence with Congress and congressional committees on behalf of their clients in order to get special earmarks placed. Um, so that was already sort of in the background and Congress, you know, took this seriously and, and, and said, well, clearly there's some need for reform here because we're seeing, you know, abuse of this project or rather this, this function of earmarking. So we need to, we need to make this a more transparent process. We need to um, insert a few more rules because, you know, one of the things about earmarking is it was not very transparent. Uh, Congress, um, you know, was putting these things in, you know, if not in budget documents, then in committee documents uh, that were basically instructions to um, the executive about how to spend um, the money that they were appropriating. And so in 2007, um, Congress basically, you know, the, with the new Democratic Congress, Democratic, um, there was a Democratic majority elected in um, 2006, they took over in 2007, and one of their first orders of business was to create a few more rules. One was about transparency. So now these things had to be reported out and identified uh, as earmarks. Um, there were um, conflict of interest rules that were put in place. Um, you know, there were a few more things to sort of try to make this process um, clearer, more transparent, and to try to cut down on um, abuse. Uh, of the practice. And so there was a, a brief reform period. It lasted from 2007 to 2011. And then a couple more things came into view that really helped to, to kill off this process. Um, one is you know, a phrase that everyone knows, the bridge to nowhere, um, that uh, uh, Ted Stevens, who was a, a lead appropriator Republican from the state of Alaska, uh, had proposed this earmark for a very expensive, uh, you know, 100 million plus bridge to uh, a basically nearly unpopulated island uh, in Alaska. And this, this just sort of seized the public imagination in a number of ways. One, the sort of, you know, wastefulness of it all, um, but also, you know, in two, you know, leading up to 2011, there was a budget crisis on the horizon, you know, big disagreements between the Republican and the Democratic parties, as represented by President Obama, and congressional Democrats and John Boehner and congressional Republicans, over what should be done about recovery from the Great Recession, um, that, uh, you know, really challenged America's uh, uh, public financing in 2009 and beyond. And so in 2009, Obama with Democratic majorities had passed this very large uh, recovery bill. You might remember the phrase shock and awe. We're gonna try to do a lot in terms of spending to try to turn around um, what looked like you know, a, a housing uh, driven recession. Republicans were aghast at the amount of spending and they wanted to roll back the clock on spending. The public was, you know, had been whipsawed between, you know, uh, what do we do about the Great Recession? You know, we're going to spend all this money uh, to what end? Um, and so this all came to a head in 2011, where earmarks were already seen as suspect, thanks to Ted Stevens, thanks to, thanks to those um, sort of isolated uh, but very public incidents of abuse. 
And then in 2011, you had a surprise move by Barack Obama in his State of the Union address. He basically said that he would no, he would not, he would veto essentially any bills that were sent to him that had earmarks in them. And this was done primarily, I think, as a feint towards the idea of trying to bring more economy to the budget, that somehow this is going to save money. And so Congress quickly, you know, in both, because it was uh, President Obama, Democrats who traditionally are, were less uh, concerned about earmarking and Republicans who, who tend to be more critical of earmarking, all the caucuses on, on both sides of the political divide basically decided to enact what they called a moratorium. They weren't going to ban the practice of earmarking, but essentially they're going to say they were going to put a hold on it, an indefinite hold on earmarking. And I think it's important to, to note here that the, these caucus rules aren't congressional rules, right? They're just rules adopted by each party that have no real effect, right, in Congress itself. It just is you know, if you toe the party line, you follow the rule. Uh, That's right. It's not a congressional rule passed by the rules committee or anything like that. So it's really only a rule in the sense that there's some external imposition of a, of a norm on, on the, uh, on the members. Is that right? That's right. Although you're completely correct. Um, you know, these things can be done and undone in a fairly, you know, uh, casual fashion. It just sort of depends on, the will of the majority within a particular caucus. But what was sort of interesting about this moment is the unanimity of it all, mm. that all of these caucuses, you know, essentially four different caucuses, majority and minority, um, led by the president, because that's another interesting feature to this too, is that it really was the president that was essentially trying to proscribe a, a, you know, a perfectly legal, legitimate and historical power, Article I power of Congress. And Congress agreed wholeheartedly. They basically said, yes, take this power away from us. Um, we're going to, or we're going to take it away from ourselves. Um, but yes, they didn't do anything to actually change the actual rules of the House or the Senate um, um, to do so. And this, this will actually become relevant and interesting as we sort of work our way towards uh, the um, um, the reinitialization of earmarking and what, this, what the Senate has done. So, so uh, moratorium period begins in 2011. Um, you know, 10 years passes and, and earmarks don't seem likely to come back. Um, and, what was, you know, I became interested in this because, you know, th there's so little <laughs> right now in Congress that has uh, much to do with sort of being, you know, your, your institutional responsibilities as a member of Congress versus your duties as a member of a political party. You know, they're used to, you know, uh, Madison was very concerned about ways in which we could connect the incentives of a particular um, member of an institution with that institution itself. That is to say that you their own institution, not to, for instance, give up power to the executive um, because of partisan uh, reasons or to not um, um, defend the prerogatives of your institution um, for, for, you know, I, I'll just turn to partisanship again, but there could be other reasons as well. And, you know, this has always been true and it's always been something of a tension in Congress, but I think, you know, 
polarization has has you know that we've experienced the kind of polarization we've experienced you know uh, some scholars have called it the the big sort you know where um there used to be a kind of middle in american politics you know if you there's a you want to think about my hands as Republicans and Democrats, they used to kind of overlap like this in the middle and there would be extremes at the ends, but we've sort of seen these mountains move apart to where there's not much in the middle, but there's people sort of um, bunched on either side. And I think our institutions have kind of struggled to keep up with that. Um, the genius of the constitution in many ways is about how do we take a very diverse society that is geographically, economically, religiously, and politically diverse and bring it together in some kind of comprehensible whole in Congress. And a lot of, um, you know, the architecture of the Constitution is trying to figure out ways in which we can build a, a governing consensus to, to run this country. And, and part of that, that, that drive for consensus is is about trying to minimize or, or um, what's a better word than minimize, I guess, um, smooth, I guess, if you will, um, um, a kind of tendency to majority tyranny that, um, you know, Madison and other founders saw this during the period between the end of the Revolutionary War and, and the, the writing of the Constitution during the Articles of Confederation period, this sort of like aggressive attempt by mere majorities to press their advantage in every way, um, you know, overweening, you know, impetuous majorities and how they could be threats to people's rights, how they could be uh, invitations to abuse of, of not just rights, but, you know, budgetary issues. Um, they, 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 they were something to be guarded against. And so there's a lot that's in our constitution that attempts to try to, again, build those kind of, that kind of consensus, consensus form of government. Um, today though, you know, the, the principle is very much about majorities and, and, you know, legitimacy of, of a right to rule or a party's right to rule is increasingly seen as directly related to their proportion of a, of a majority in which they represent. And you know, there's reasons that are easy to understand uh, about legitimacy and democracy that you would you know, essentially, you know, if we're living in a democracy, you, know, you, ha you have to have a majority to rule. I don't think that's been contested so much in American history. The, the question is the extent to which you have that right to rule, how deep does it go? Um, how far can a majority dictate to a minority what policy will be? And I think we see those tensions very much present in Congress today, where there's a kind of exacting demand for majority rule uh, and a kind of um, forgetting or, or, or um, um, critic, criticism of the role that minorities should or can play and when I say minorities, I mean simply just not majorities, you know, people who uh, are part of uh, the, the minority party or, or another sort of political faction that could be considered a minority, that they don't necessarily need a seat at the table and that um, majorities have the right to, to do, you know, whatever they want, whatever, you know, is legal or possible. And so this has created real tensions in Congress. And I think it's helped to uh, create a kind of friction that has lessened 
not only the amount, but the quality of legislation that we see. It's changed what it's like to be a member of Congress. I think it's made the job much less um, rewarding and interesting. Um, and I think it's also, you know, Yuval Levin has talked about this. It's, it's changed the incentive structure in Congress to be more about partisan politics and less about actually legislating and doing your job as a member of Congress. He, he has this great phrase, performative politics, that you know, the incentives are you know, to, to, to mean tweet and to get on media and basically to show your constituency um, the, you know, which essentially can in many ways boil down to your primary voters in your district that, you know, you are towing a certain ideological or political line, but there's not a lot of interest in sort of those old fashioned ideas about transactional politics, you know, that, you know, you're in Congress to do a job, you know, there's, there's problems back in the district. We need funding for, um, certain, uh, programs or building a road or a bridge or a school, um, we need, uh, you know, bureaucratic unsticking, you know, to make sure that we get our social security check on time. So those I think of- all those kinds of things that you're mentioning on this party stuff, I definitely want to dive, dive into a little bit deeper, but maybe we go back for the, for the earmark, just kind of finish the earmark discussion a little bit. So you'd mentioned it gone into hibernation or, or pause, you know, during the, uh, Obama was the uh, was the trigger, uh, or, or at least the straw, and that moved it into this into this you know no man's land uh, enforced by parties, right? So eventually that changed. Can you just bring us through the end game of the earmarks uh, issue, and then we'll come back to parties? Sure. I I was just trying to set this up. Maybe you know I'm being a professor. I guess I'm just sort of taking my advantage here and just talk talk talk. But um, what what I was trying to set up is this idea that. Earmarking was was one of these last transactional kinds of activities that took place in Congress. It really wasn't about partisanship. It really wasn't about um, a kind of, you know, um, you know, who's in charge kind of question and what they're going to do about it. It really, and so Kevin and I, Kevin Kosar and I set up this research project where we're asking a couple of questions uh, because after 10 years of the moratorium, I was concerned and interested in the idea that in eliminating earmarking, Congress also did something to further polarize the institution by taking away a kind of institutional and transactional um, function that's related to their Article I powers. Um, And so we, we turned this into a couple of research questions to try to understand that. One was how did Congress actually do earmarking? Like how did this process work? What was inside this sort of sometimes black box of earmarking? Um, And secondarily, what did the elimination of earmarks do to um, Congress's uh, legislative capacities? And so we, you know, to try to understand or operationalize an idea of legislative capacity, we turn this into a fairly straightforward comment or, or idea how how is eliminating earmarking affected congressional majorities' ability to pass their their legislative priorities? Because the idea that we had hypothesized is that the leadership used earmarks um, to actually help them to govern, to essentially hand out resources on the margins to put together coalitions of votes in order to pass their their legislative majorities. So they buy off the uh, dissent within their own party and then maybe buy off a few votes from the opposing party uh, on a, any particular issue. And that's how you, you hypothesize that earmarks were used. That, that's what we thought uh, because, you know, 
it was, you know, it was informed by maybe some anecdotal evidence and our understanding of working in Congress. And so we did uh, two things. One is I led a, a group of our students at the Policy Lab to interview former members of Congress, people who had worked in Congress before this reform period, during this, this reform period, and then at the moment of the moratorium to try to get their perspective on not only how did the process work, but you know, did they think that the moratorium had uh, a deleterious effect on the institution of Congress? And so just quickly to go through the results of that, what was really fascinating are a couple of things. One, um, it was a tremendously bipartisan process. Um, you know, I, I, we talked to appropriators who were sort of inside this process and, and knew it, you know, maybe more um, intimately. And we also talked to, to members who, you know, were a little bit on the outside of this, but had made earmark requests. And what we found out is that, you know, typically what would happen is a majority would essentially, they, they would, you know, they they would look at in the budget committee, you know, what what are the uh, the budget caps for a particular year? They would, based on those caps, they would basically try to figure out well what's left over for earmarks, which, by the way, tended to be you know um, around one to two percent of um, discretionary spending, which you know, in 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 our terms, is a lot of money. In in federal budgeting terms, was not a lot of money. And then essentially, you know, they would divide it up. 60-40 mostly, maybe 55-45. And then the minority members would essentially basically get, you know, dole out the money in ways that they thought was appropriate for their caucus, and the majority would do the same. And this, this had a number of, of, of effects. One is it gave everybody in both caucuses an opportunity to essentially allow their members to identify priorities in their districts and get them funded which was important for re-election, but was also really important in terms of a, a sort of like, you know, this is part of their job description, right? This is what Congress people are supposed to do. And this was kind of a, I don't even want to call it bipartisan. I would just say an institutional mechanism. So just to clarify, the money, there's some kind of pot of money and it was divided up according to the proportions of each, each political party in the house. And then the political party itself would decide who in their party got what versus everyone getting pro rata same share. Uh, That's right. Because really what it was is it, it was, uh, um, you know, the ranking member or the uh, chairman of appropriations. This, this, this process took place in the appropriations committee. They, you know, there was some, you know, say that leadership had in this, you know, above appropriations, but this was a very sort of inside approach kind of, of task or duty. So basically the lead party member or group of party members in the appropriations committees would decide who got what among right. all their party members in the house. That's right. Or Senate, I guess. That's right. And, and but again, they, they were trying to do their best to distribute this stuff according to what they thought was, you know, most, um, you know, needed. And there's a lot of, di- you know, do- a lot of different ways in which they would define need. And we tried to get into that as well. We asked this question, like, how often was it that that earmarks were given on the basis of, say, needing a vote? Um, you know, was this a tool that leadership used? And the answer was rarely that it was always on the margins, that this was not something that was uh, often um, uh, a resort of leadership, but only like in moments where they were having trouble getting together um, 
you know, a few people on the margins. Um, and, you know, the Congress people themselves selves said that, you know, they might have been offered them. Sometimes they took it, sometimes they didn't. But if they did take it, they always saw it as in the interests of their districts. It's interesting. So I, I talked to Larry Evans early on in the in this series, and he did a book on the whips. And, uh, you know, I, I would assume that this would be the tool the whips would be using, right? Because ultimately, the whips have to get the votes. And you would think this would have been a tool the whips would be using. But it sounds like this was totally outside the, the control of the whip function. Well, I, well, let me put it this way. Like when I say it was the appropriators that were leading this process in terms of distributing in their caucuses, that's true. But leadership could step in when necessary and essentially, you know, direct approaches to give certain earmarks when needed, you know, because ultimately the speaker's in charge, right? So if the speaker, um, you know, deems this a priority, you know, he or she can step in and, and change the calculation. But again, we thought this was like a very um, off, a recourse of leadership, but we found it was actually pretty rare uh, for the most part. The other thing that we found from a lot of legislators, um, well, first off, I should say, we, 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 in, we interviewed a sample of 10, five Republicans, five Democrats, few people from, you know, a handful of people from approps. Um, none, all of, I would say nine of them said, we need to bring back earmarks. This was in the end of um, 20, the pandemic hit, so I can't tell time anymore, right? Last year was 2019. Uh, but th this was uh, essentially, a, uh, let's say, a year before um, earmarks were actually brought back. Um, so this would be, I guess, 2020. Um, nine of 10 said that we should bring earmarking back. And it was kind of surprising. I thought there would be more of a division there, particularly between parties. And the one who said, um, you know, they were unsure about bringing earmarks back, but they weren't opposed to it. They were sort of like, you know, ambivalent. So that was kind of a surprising result. Why is it that all of these Congress people wanted to bring these things back? Well, a couple of reasons. One is, is they saw that they believed anyway, that this did actually help to increase polarization, particularly around the budget, that a lot of approps bills uh, used to sail through because you had a lot of buy-in from different members of Congress because their needs essentially were met in the appropriations bill because they, were, they had an earmark in there. Um, and so these votes didn't tend to be terribly controversial. They tended to, to pass with bipartisan majorities a lot of the time. And these members had seen this process break down in a number of ways, and they suspected that earmarking had a lot to do with it. Uh, one thing that I heard from all members, but particularly from members that either were from rural districts or had rural uh, parts of districts, were that uh, earmarks were a way of, of distributive politics. That is to say, a lot of the funding that takes place during this moratorium period falls out of Congress's responsibility and into the responsibility of executive agencies. You have this weird reversal of control where you have Congress people basically writing letters, what was called letter marking, to different bureaucrats in, in the administration to basically say, okay, we're sending you all of this money. Could you please use a bit of this for something I need in my district? and or trying to set up a formula by which the federal government would apply and decide how to distribute money. The idea being that this would be a sort of a fair and equitable way if you had a formula. But what a lot of members that had rural districts saw was that oftentimes these federal funding formulas tended to favor uh, urban areas. 
and that it became increasingly difficult to bring resources to rural areas and that earmarking had been a way to sort of correct that differential, that it had been a way to distribute resources. Um, one member called it, you know, first aid for rural America. And so they, they really thought earmarks should be back for that reason. Um, and then of course, you know, uh, probably said it already, but just the idea of like, th they just couldn't do their jobs as well. They couldn't bring back resources in the way that they could. This became a much more formulaic kind of executive um, dominated area to get these kinds of funding. Um, it, it took power away from Congress and it put it in the executive. And so Congress was sort of undermining itself and its abilities to legislate um, by giving up what, what was a kind of essential and important institutional power, which is earmarking. And so now they brought it back. Now they brought it back. Um, it's funny how quickly it came together. Um, you know, <laughs> this, is, this is correlation, not causation, but Kevin and I came out our, with our article in February and earmarking was back in March um, and it was led by Democrats. But here's, here's the thing that I think is really essential and important to understand about why earmarking is, is relevant. Cause you know, some might think about this as kind of, you know, well, it's kind of small ball in terms of congressional reform doesn't really mean too much. Um, you know, maybe this is kind of a marginal change. And in some ways I think that's true, but if you look out on institutional reform in Congress, I, I defy you to find many institutional reforms or any where there has been a consensus between Republicans and Democrats in making a, a fundamental change in, in terms of incentives and behavior in the way in which Congress operates outside of earmarking. Um, the, the, I think the, the impetus for bringing it back came out of a bipartisan committee on the modernization of Congress um, where essentially the committee had recommended to bring earmarking back after research and testimony to say that this was an important Article I power, that, this, that Congress should take this back from the executive, but that there ought to be more reforms in place before it comes back. And so they recommended a, a number of changes which were adopted um, by Democrats who um, have the majority in the House, um, and uh, we'll talk about the Senate in a minute. But really, you know, this to, in order for this to be a truly institutional reform, you have to have both parties agree to it. And what I was really surprised and pleased to see is that at this critical moment where Democrats had basically put themselves out there and said, we want to bring these things back. The Republican caucus in the House ultimately agreed. I think um, the politics of this were such that the very easy political decision amongst House Republicans would be say, no, this is waste, fraud, and abuse. We don't like this. We never have. We're not bringing them back. We won't cooperate. And then you've only got Democrats who want earmarks, and that just won't work as an institutional reform. But Republicans, they agreed. And so this really became a kind of, again, bipartisan institutional budgeting change that was um, strengthening I think the role of, of members of Congress, not as partisans, but as members of Congress. And, um, you know, in terms of the effects, you know, I'm still looking into, you know, what's, what's happening, what effect has earmarking had. One thing, that, one thing I can assure you of though, is it's not really changing spending at all. One of the agreement, even though earmarking never cost a lot, one of the agreements on both sides was that there would be a cap of 1% of discretionary spending on earmarking. So it would become impossible 
uh, for um, you know Congress to to break the bank on earmarks. So how are the earmarks allocated now? Is it again through the appropriations committees as kind of kingmaker there, or what's it by party, or is there a different mechanism? It you know it does happen through the appropriations committee still, but one of the reforms that's come through that I think has had uh, a really effective uh, made for an effective change is limiting the number of requests that members make. And so last year. Uh, when they rolled this out again, there there was a limit of ten requests. They've raised the House's appropriations has raised that to fifteen this year. So fifteen per member. Fifteen per member, mm. and for the most part, people are getting what they're asking for. Um, you know, I think you know I did an analysis of um, you know which earmarks were approved in fiscal year twenty two. And the House did a really good job of equitably distributing earmarks uh, around the country. They call it, I keep using earmarks because that's what everyone just refers to them as. They call them congressionally directed spending, which is kind of a mouthful, uh, but gets us away from, you know, the E word. Um, but, you know, another thing, you know, talking about approps, another thing that this, this change, um, some of the reform has had is appropriators. And, and leadership were, were always overrepresented in the, you know, who got earmarks. And in the House, I think you can, you can say now that that's just, that's not the case, um, that it's, it's much more equitably distributed. In the Senate, it's a very different story. Um, we talked, you, you had mentioned earlier that, um, you know, the moratorium was put in place by essentially party rules, which are, you know, easily made and easily changed. But they still, you know, can be sticky uh, and they can still affect uh, member behavior. And so while House Republicans agreed to congressionally directed spending as reformed, uh, Senate De Republicans had, they'd done something <laughs> a few years before. They basically had decided we're going to make this moratorium permanent. As far as, far as uh, Senate uh, Republicans were concerned, we'll never bring them back. And so when the opportunity came to bring them back, they were in this awkward position where they had a party rule that said, never, ever, never, the sun can wink out, we don't care. Uh, and then suddenly we've got the House unanimous that we're going to bring them back. And so there was this kind of weird compromise where essentially what was the leadership said is like, look, House Senate, Senator, or sorry, <laughs> Republican senators, um, if you want an earmark, go get yourself an earmark. You can simply like cover your eyes and not pay any attention to this rule, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Maybe it does politically. So for members that really wanted to get back into um, earmarks, appropriators like Lindsey Graham um, or uh, Richard Shelby from Alabama, uh, they went right back to it. But for a lot of Republican senators, I think it sort of raised the political cost of participating because it could be used by Republicans in primaries to say, look, Senator so-and-so is breaking the rules uh, by asking for earmarks. And I think there was a real chilling effect that that had. And, and as a consequence, there's been a real unequal distribution of earmarks, both in terms of parties uh, and in terms of appropriators on the Senate side. See, I'm interested, and this takes us to our, our next discussion, which is about parties. You know, I'm always amazed that these external rules can exist to Congress, right? So, you know, you have these parties, which are, they're not in the Constitution. They're not formal uh, entities within Congress, and yet they're governing the behavior of individual members, which, in, you know, in my view is very suspect. Um, 
And yet, you know, there's all these rules that the Democrats have on Democrats and the Republicans have on Republicans. So can you talk through kind of your perspective on the party system, since you've done a lot of thinking about party over the years and 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 their, you know, what's positive about them in your mind versus this kind of like, in my mind, was quite an external control of members' freedom within the chambers. Yeah, this is a this is a tricky question. Um that could have a, a long historical discussion attached to it, but I'll, I'll, I'll try to boil that down a little bit so we can sort of get it to, to contemporary concerns about partisanship. Um, you know, I think it's been, it's something of a reflex in American politics to be anti-partisan in certain ways. I mean, it dates back to the founding generation, you know, um, George Washington's farewell address is filled with warnings about party spirit and partisanship. And as you say, the Constitution doesn't describe political parties as you know being official parts of, of the government. Um, but I think it was found relatively quickly as um, consensus about the Constitution and about the direction of the country broke down, that parties were an essential way of organizing public opinion, uh, holding government accountable to an agenda, um, and educating the public about politics. Um, without parties, you know, democracy really can't function in, a, in, an, in an essential way. We, can, we, we, could, we would become too separated, too, um, too individualized, too uncertain about sort of what the overall public good was we wouldn't know sort of where to start on the buzzing confusion of problems that need to be solved and where they fit on an agenda. In, you know, individuals would have difficulty distinguishing between candidates and what they represent. Um, if you didn't have all these different things that positive things that parties have done over the years in terms of setting an agenda, in terms of vetting candidates, in terms of mobilizing voters during elections in order to create legitimacy or the appearance of, of you know, democratic acceptance of, of, uh, of uh, candidates and agendas. You know, I, you, you, you can't dispense with those things. Uh, the, I think you would not have democracy function without parties. That's not to say, though, that parties can, you know, uh, overflow their banks. And I think we're, we're living in, an, you know, we've seen periods of this before. We're living in a period of, of, of more extreme polarization. And so the question is, you know, why is it that we see sort of this big sort occurring? Why is it that the American public is dividing itself, um, you know, ever more severely on sort of common understandings of, of government uh, and how government ought to, to, to function. And I think parties have been very strained by this separation. Um, and we've, you know, we've kind of talked about that already. Um, but one of the reasons I think that political parties are not operating efficiently today and this is this is something that's very confusing, and sometimes it's hard to establish to sort you know to sort of say that parties are weak. People sort of start rolling their eyes or getting fussy. You know, what do you mean weak parties? We've got nothing but parties. Like parties control every aspect of our our politics. You know, in state legislatures and caucuses, from the president and elections. You know, we have nothing but seemingly strong parties, but we have strong parties in the sense that we have 
you know, partisanship that defines so much of our political life. But if you think about parties as an institution, something that's a private association that exists, that exists outside of government, that has a deep and meaningful connection to uh, public opinion, that has a strong representative connection to a, you know, a legitimate and definable um, a population um, in, in, amongst voters. Um, if you want to talk about an institution that is able to sort of set its own destiny uh, in terms of agenda setting and in terms of, you know, having control over who runs under their banner, we do not have strong parties. We have incredibly weak parties as institutions. And, you know, there's a lot that was done, particularly during the 20th century, to try to basically turn parties into a kind of public utilities, <laughs> where, um, you know, parties are so much of our election laws, parties are so much of our campaign finance regulations, parties are, are so much just uh, an essential part of our understanding of, of how Congress works uh, in terms of caucuses, uh, in terms of majorities and committees, in terms of leadership, that there, I think, has been a difficulty in making parties adaptable. That is to say that there, I think parties as institutions have hardened to a certain degree. Um, and I think change has become and reform of, of the individual parties, Republican and Democrat, has become, has become increasingly difficult. And so as a consequence, you have these two political parties, you have this duopoly of parties that I think are decreasingly relevant and decreasingly representative of the major policy cleavages and what is actually happening in American politics. Um, you've got these two institutions that have a weaker hold on the public imagination and on a kind of, you know, more or less legitimate representation of public opinion, but have a harder and harder grasp on government itself. And I think that's, what, that's, that's the tension we're living out right now. That's why there's a lot of concern, I think, about you know, primary reform. You know, primaries seem more and more captive to the most uh, partisan voices because so many sort of regular people who might have participated in primaries have essentially moved away and said, I'm not interested in these partisans. I don't like these choices. They don't represent me. This party doesn't represent me. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm withdrawing. Uh, and what's left is, is an increasingly um, performative, ideological um, um, extreme. And I think it's ill-served uh, Congress in terms of the types of members who come there and how they define their jobs. Um, so, you know, that, that's, that's kind of my quick take on, on polarization in Congress. And these external rules that are imposed on members within their parties, do you think these are legitimate? Well, I mean, so when we say external Rules? Are we talking just about party rules? I mean, yeah, like these caucuses, exactly? they decided no earmarks, and so they're new, no, no earmarks, right? I mean, and presumably they have the ability to reward or punish members for their compliance or lack thereof of their party rules. But these rules are not part of the Congress itself. So when you talk about the job that they've been hired to do, right? They've been hired to do a certain job. 
definitely in that job description doesn't include, and by the way, you're going to follow these rules set by some external entity, that being the party. So I'm curious about, you know, someone who's thought about parties so long, particularly their positive elements, like these external rules, what positive things are they really bringing into the Congress and what negative things? And, you know, again, I always kind of go back to their legitimacy, but they've been around so long, I guess maybe it's hard to question that, but you know, at least as they stand today, what's your what's your perspective on, you know, these members being beholden to party rules when they have a job that they signed up to do, which is to represent their entire district, not just the the party members of that district? Well, I mean, there's a number of things to say. Let me let me focus the question down on how party rules and parties approaches to organizing Congress can have real meaningful outcomes in terms of the way Congress actually operates. And I'll, you know, this, this is, you know, yet another tension, democratic tension in Congress. Go back to Uncle Joe Cannon, you know, that sort of wiry uh, member of Congress from um, Illinois, who basically became a kind of tyrant because he managed to wield the power and the rules um, around the speakership. Uh, in order to basically, you know, decide what, what bills would be heard, what bills wouldn't be heard, what would get voted on, and really minimize the impact of, of rank and file members to have any kind of influence on what would happen in Congress. And this was all set by, by rules. And there was a, eventually, this is about 1906 or so, eventually during, you know, the early years of the progressive era, there, there was a revolt and um, this started within his own caucus, the Republican caucus, but Democrats followed suit as well, um, that basically said, we need reforms. We need to change the ways in which uh, we have empowered as party members, the Speaker of the House, and we need to give more power to committees. We need to undermine the, way, the ways in which the Speaker can essentially uh, become a kind of almost prime minister in the way in which you know, he can carry out his duties. And so the rules changed and committees became much more relevant and the speaker became less relevant. What was the consequence? Well, uh, these committee members basically became kind of cardinals or the, the, the um, I should say the committee chairs became cardinals. Uh, basically your longevity in Congress basically ensured um, you know, your ability to pass legislation because you could eventually become a committee chair and you could basically, you know, dictate what would come through your committee. And so instead of the speaker dominating, these committee chairs dominated. Um, take us to the 1970s, early 1970s. Democrats have the majority and younger members are coming into Congress and now they're not frustrated by the speaker they're rather frustrated by these, these fusty old committee chairs that all seem to be from Texas and who have no interest in the kind of reform-mindedness of these newer members that are, are coming in in greater numbers in the 1970s. So they change the rules again. And they say, you know, we, we want more younger members represented on these committees. We want to undermine what committees are doing or the chairs are doing to try to make this a more broadly shared responsibility within the committees. That takes place. Um, yeah, I think it does uh, improve the functioning of Congress, the, those reforms, but, you know, there, there are always trade-offs. Uh, you think about the Republican Revolution in 1994, I mean, this seems a while ago now, Newt Gingrich. A lot of his focus was not simply on the federal agenda, but actually changing the way Congress worked, how the House worked. He, for instance, instituted the six-year term limits for committee chairs 
so that you could only serve six years and then you had to go because he wanted to further you know, create this kind of uh, responsiveness within committees to give other voices an opportunity and not have these sort of cardinals of the house. That had its own trade-offs in terms of, of less expertise, in terms of less control of, of, of uh, members of committees that made them maybe less effective in some ways at their jobs. So, you know, I, I'm just trying to give an example about the ways in which these party rules they're not so much arbitrary. They're not just sort of coming out of nowhere. I think they are in many ways reflective of problems that have been diagnosed about the ways in which Congress functions as, as a partisan majority and trying to understand ways in which these rules can help them to better function. But that, you know, Congress is not static. You know, it's as dynamic and changing as our own society and politics. And so, you know, these rules need to be constantly revisited and examined. Um, and it's the responsibility, it's the, it's the institutional responsibility of partisans not to simply seek their own interests. That is to say, we want to seek a certain outcome. We always want these ends. Where, where, and I think that's where, I think maybe that's what you were getting at is sort of like when partisans only care about the ends, they don't care about the institution. But that would be the get, definition of a partisan, wouldn't it? I mean, it's de no, defined I don't think so, by, I think, by interest in a particular, in, you know, having a particular interest at the, you know, and prioritizing that above others. So I would think that by definition, a partisan would put their interest of their party above the constitution or by the institution, by, by Congress itself. There are always examples of that, but I think by and large, each of America's main political parties, you know, since the Civil War has had a theory of, of the institution and has had a theory of the way in which, um, you know, the House and the Senate are supposed to operate. And there has been consensus more or less about what that means. And I think it's also been an understanding that members of Congress not only have responsibilities to their constituents and responsibilities to their parties, but they also have responsibilities to the institution and its functioning. Um, so I think it, it's, it's painting with too broad a brush to say that if you are a partisan, then you automatically and only care about the considerations of party. I do think, however, that has become increasingly the way in which partisans have seen their jobs and the ways in which Congress looks at its, um, its organization. But I think that's a modern, contemporary change, and I think a very unhealthy one. Well, actually, this leads perfectly into the, into the next round of questions where I ask you uh, what I've asked many in the past, and so we can compare the answers. Uh, so you ready for the next phase? Yeah, let's do it. So you know, this question is, what do you think congressional representation should mean? And it kind of cuts right to the previous mm -hmm. discussion about partisanship. You know, you're elected as a representative uh, you know, of a district or, a, or of a state. Um, what does that representation mean? Do you represent just the people in the party in your district? Do you represent the primary voters? Do you represent everybody? Do you represent all future generations? You know, and, and so that's the first question, part of that question. The other is how do you represent them? Do you just reflect their views? Or are you a Burkean where you're making your own judgments about what is in the long-term interests of your district? Great question. And I think that question has a lot to do with sort of our, our recent political discontents um relating to polarization um and a few other sort of maybe more partisan discussions we could have um but you know to a sort of classic understanding or distinction that's made in american politics about representation has to do with the sort of trustee versus delegate model and the trustee model 
you know, as represented by uh, Burke, is this idea that, you know, um, you are entrusted to um, make decisions on behalf of the public, um, that you ultimately have a responsibility and are accountable to the public, but for the decision-making process and the considerations that you put in, you have to use your own best judgment based on your research, based on your understanding, based on your conclusions about the public good, that these should, you know, sort of, you, you know, your own value added as a, as a thinker, decision maker, a decider is, is an important part of what you're doing to represent your district. The, the delegate model is more about, we, I need to reflect in a very exacting way what my district wants you know, in a very sort of, you know, popularistic kind of like small d democratic way. I, I should not substitute my own judgment if it should differ in some way from what the constituents in my district would say in terms of responding to a public opinion poll, for example. Um, and, you know, this has always been a tension in understanding uh, representation in American politics, you know, or to people's, you know. So where do you come down on it for yourself? Well, I, you know, I, I, this will sound like so weaselly, but it's going to, I'd say it's in the middle. Um, like, for instance, you know, just what I was talking about previously in terms of, you know, the institution of Congress, you know, there are going to be decisions that members of Congress are called upon that may not necessarily, that, that people in their district may not be informed enough to, to, to venture a useful opinion on um, that can be somewhat complex, that relate to institutions, that can relate to the functioning of Congress, that can relate to some really complex matters where in some sense, you know, you can think about the job of a representative as sort of doing work on behalf of constituents. You know, it's a division of labor. We don't have the time, resources, energy. We, none of us, I'm not talking about like me as a PhD. I don't have time for this, right? In some sense, I'm hiring my representative to go do this on my behalf, to go, go into committees, go into subcommittees, take testimony, talk to people, have their staffs work through this interest. And at the same time, communicate with their districts, educate their districts about what are the issues that are most important, lay out those responsibilities, lay out those arguments on behalf of, you know, why I think this is a priority for the district. This is why I think this is important. I think it's, it's always inadvisable and undemocratic to wander very far from what your district, um, you know, is, it would agree to or not agree to. But I do think it is an essential and important part of a representative's job to use their own um, initiative and understanding and to work hard on, you know, taking this buzzing confusion of interests and ideas and distilling it down into an agenda and, and a vote and defending that vote and explaining that vote to constituents and also responding to, and when those constituents respond, using their judgment to how to weigh that in their, in their decision-making process about a vote. I think where this system starts to break down, and I think it's where it's broken down in the last 20 years, is on this question of how legitimate that representation is. I, you know, delegate and trustee kind of implies legitimacy in a way. You know, the, the delegate model, I think, leans very hard on this idea that if you don't have 
a body, a majority in your district supporting this particular initiative, then there's no support for it, that there's no legitimate way that a member can say, well, you've all got your points, but I'm going to vote this way anyway. Um, doesn't really add up in terms of, of, of a kind of democratic logic. But I do think, you know, the very idea of representative government is, is based on a kind of trust. Um, you know, you go back to New England, you know, the sort of town hall form of government where everyone represented themselves individually and in person, you know, that has in a sort of, that's on sort of one end of the extreme, you know, where there's no representation, you're there yourself. You know, obviously that has tremendous limitations on it in terms of a national government. So how do we, you know, sort of take that sort of exactitude of representation and sort of scale it up into, you know, Congress? And I think people have been, you know, through parties, um, through constituent services, through elections, people felt for the most part that the representation, the quality of representation and sort of legitimacy of representation that they had in Washington, they may not like their particular member of Congress, but they weren't necessarily questioning that they represented them and their interests. And I think starting with the Tea Party movement, there has been this erosion of a feeling that Congress is not representative of the public interest, that it has diverted or differed or drifted in some way from the center of where people actually are in terms of their interests. Um, I think there's been a constant and, and uh, legitimate claim that, for instance, um, organized interests have dominate um, the decisions of Congress too much. That is to say, individual member, you know, constituents voting have less impact than, say, a well-funded and well-organized interest in Washington in terms of affecting the legislative agenda and what actually gets passed. I think, I think people have reacted to a feeling that, you know, representation has been subverted by interests. Um, no, but I, I think agree, but I, I do want to get back to kind of your personal feeling. So on the one side, you, it sounds like you think in some cases there needs to be more of a judgment, like a Burkean, and on other cases, it's more reflection of, you know, the, if the electorate is well-informed and they're unified in a particular position that the that the representative should respond and, and reflect that. Is that right? For the, for the first part of the question? Well, you know, <laughs> uh, yes and no. Uh, I guess I would say what I'm trying to build up to is if you, if you work, you know, building, building legitimacy is a big part of what a government is supposed to do, a democratic government. And I think in moments where you have a lot of trust and a lot of legitimacy, you can be much more of a delegate style leader. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, reverse that. You can be a much more of a trustee style where people feel very comfortable perhaps with your judgment. They, they see the, the connection between themselves and you and the way in which you're representing them. There's a, a high degree of trust. You know, if you go back to like, you know, sort of the post-World War II period in America where, you know, government was highly trusted, Congress was, you know, wasn't exactly popular, but a lot more than it is today that trustee model was much more possible. I think you, you got a little more slack from constituents. And, and is that because, you know, this was to the other part of the question, you know, a representative, do they represent the, the primary voters? The, do they represent, you know, the party members in their district? Do they represent everybody who's voting? Do they represent everyone? You know, where do you come down on that? It sounds like 
you feel like that that's gone the wrong direction, which has impacted the other side of the equation. So in your opinion, is it the representative should represent who in the district? Well, you know, they, they should, there's a kind of incentive here. I keep talking in terms of incentives because I think it's important to understand motives and the way people sort of see their jobs. And, you know, back when, like, you know, the post-World War II period where you, you had much more moderate parties, you had more people participating in a primary. And so the choices you got tended to be more moderate uh, in terms of the kinds of candidates that were selected in that process. Um, today, you know, people, fewer and fewer people are participating in primaries. But that the motivation in terms of election, if you live in a, in a district that's been drawn in such a way that it's very Republican, you only have to respond in today where you would have respond to, I don't know, let's call it, you know, 50% of the electorate participating in a party primary. Now you've got 17% participating in a party primary, but the result is the same. You get elected because all you have to do is survive the party primary to, to win the general. And so, yes, we have this, this smaller and smaller fraction of, of a constituency deciding on who that member is going to be. And that member looks at their, their job as not representing the whole district, but trying to reflect the views of those people that are gonna get them reelected. Uh, and, and therein we see these, these sort of negative effects of polarization where the, the, the job of representation is being drawn into a narrower and narrower compass to where I'm just there to represent the sort of rump of who's left in my party, who's gonna reelect me in the next party primary. Right, so my question is, what should it be? That Your personal opinion. If that's the way well, I think that's how opinion. many of them respond to it. Is I, your personal opinion they should represent everyone or do you, do you agree with this, you know, cater to the primary voter uh, is my job concept? I think we need to change the incentives and I think we also need to make parties more representative is what I think. Um, I think that parties cast a narrower and narrower um, uh, shadow over American politics, and yet they, they still have a sort of uncontested um, power over the function of government. And until parties become more representative, until they, they actually draw a, a larger constituency, uh, I don't see this changing. Uh, I see, you know, parties are going to, are you know, members of Congress are going to follow their incentives. And if the incentives are to speak to a narrower slice of the American public, that is what they're going to do because they won't be re uh, rewarded electorally otherwise. So until parties, then, and, and that's the tricky part. It's like, I don't, I don't have all the answers. I don't know how you make parties more representative. I really don't. There's been a lot of failed attempts to try to empower you know, political parties as, as institutions over the years, many of which have um, um, happened around campaign finance law that I think have had some very um, unintended consequences. Um, but, but, you know, at the end of the day, nothing has really happened. I, I, I honestly, I think the way this has worked, it's been, it's now ancient political history. But the way this has worked in the past and, and sort of my excitement about uh, initial excitement about the Tea Party movement was it's largely third parties that come in and try to sweep away um, and challenge older parties that aren't representing uh, the American public. It sort of creates a kind of competition where, you know, this third party comes out of nowhere 
um, seems to better represent and reflect what's happening in America, in politics, and parties have to respond. Either they have to co-opt those issues or they die. And that, you know, the Tea Party movement did not really become co-opted by the Republican Party. In some many ways, the Tea Party movement co-opted the Republican Party itself, I think, because um, the institution itself was not very strong. Um, and so we didn't get a kind of change. We got a kind of radicalization of what we already had in the institution of the Republican Party. Um, you know, we need more competition in parties. You know, we have two, we have this duopoly in politics, but I think it's less and less representative. And that's why we see these kind of really dissatisfying consequences in terms of who's elected to Congress and the ways in which Congress operates. And that kind of comes back to what I mentioned earlier about the rules. If the two parties have created these external rules, uh, it blocks out you know, new party entrance, which is a challenge. Um, but I think I have to move on to the next question, uh, which is uh, how would your ideal Congress allocate its time? Would you have them in DC all the time? Would you have them at the district all the time? And, you know, would you have them in committee? Would you have, what would you have them doing? Well, I would try to have them do less fundraising. I, I think that takes up way too much of Congress people's times. I think, I think it's helped to change the job description significantly. Um, you know, if you want to be a member of Congress, you have got to not only be a good fundraiser, you've got to spend uh, a lot of your time doing so. You know, the Senate is slightly, you know, less subject to this because of the six-year terms, it, but it's, it's really the House that feels this pressure. I mean, there's, there's so much time taken up with fundraising that should be taken up with legislating. And I guess I, that's the other thing I would say is that, you know, Congress should spend, try to spend more time legislating. Now, legislating has never been a kind of high profit activity for Congress people if you think about their goal as re-election. Um, but nonetheless, I think fundraising and polarization have done to, a lot to further exclude legislating and being a legislator from the job description of being um, a member of Congress. I was talking to some former Senate staffers a couple of weeks ago when I was in Washington, um, who had worked in Congress, you know, since the 1980s and retired within the last five or so years. And one of the one of the things that kind of struck me in terms of their, you know, viewpoints on how Congress has changed was, you know, there, if you, you know, have an almanac of American politics, you know, where it talks about the, you know, all the different members of Congress, their background, you know, how um, their districts, you know, it's a way in which, you know, people can sort of understand different members. They used to have these little voting guides you know, where, you know, different interest groups would basically score them, you know, 100 to zero on their positions. And these staffers were saying, Congress is taking so few votes, it's difficult to put those together anymore. Like, it's hard to even get a sense of where members are standing on issues because they just don't vote very often. And it was, you know, it, it may be kind of a, a, an anecdote, but I think it's interesting in the sense that, you know, there's not a lot of legislating going on anymore. And that's a problem. Now, do, does that mean I think, you know, we Congress should just be passing a lot of bills? No. Uh, but what I do think is that, again, if you think that they've got a job to do in Washington uh, in terms of, of identifying problems in their districts and their states and in the nation, taking testimony and researching about solutions to those problems, and then trying to come up with a legislative solution to that, uh, I, I think it's highly problematic in our society that Congress, in terms of its legislative capacities, that is to say its capacity to legislate, 
um, you know, seems seems very, very handicapped these days. And so more legislating, trying to figure out ways to change incentives in order to get Congress more focused on legislating and less on sort of, um, you know, polarizing partisan interests and on fundraising and how you do that. Hopefully you'll have somebody else in this series that has more answers than I do. Awesome. Next question is uh, what fundamental institutional improvement should Congress make within 50 years? Yeah, that's. Um, they already brought earmarks back, so you got that. You <laughs> the new one. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, Congress in certain ways is a hostage to fortune in the sense that, like I was saying, I think, you know, party reform will, will shape Congress in terms of its, its successes or its failures. And so I think it's hard to divide the two entirely. And, but we've talked a lot about parties already, but I just want to sort of, you know, put a pin in that to sort of say, Congress is not fully in control of its own destiny in terms of the ways in which it, it can function as an institution. I think partisanship and elections and the way in which American political parties operate will dictate a lot of that. But within Congress's scope of, of power, uh, what it can do I mean, I think it, it has a lot to do with trying to kind of do the things I was talking about earlier and sort of that sweep from, you know, Uncle Joe, Speaker Uncle Joe Cannon until, you know, Newt Gingrich and then beyond. You know, I think, I think it's a, there's a, a continuing tension in Congress to try to, to balance power, um, balance power between the leadership committees and rank and file members. And I think polarization has been in some ways an invitation to center power more and more within the leadership. I think this is, you know, you see this through omnibus legislation, you see this in the way in which uh, leadership can have a stranglehold on um, how bills and, and amendments are made, you know, that virtually no amendments get made, that nothing hits the floor unless, you know, leadership has absolutely planned it out well in advance that, you know, the rules committee becomes a kind of uh, star chamber for the legislature, for the, the leadership in the house in order to sort of control not only what's on the floor, but what it looks like. You know, all of these things, I think, impact this idea of legitimacy and the ability of Congress in a meaningful way to deliberate and to represent a diversity of interests in, in sort of deciding what the public good is. I think that process easily becomes inverted into a kind of pyramid where you get the leadership on the top and you got everyone else down below. And instead of things rising from the bottom, they tend to come down from the top. And so, you know, I think this is, this is a problem in Congress, uh, you know, dominance by leadership in the Senate and in the House. I think it, it's, an, it's a, a, mal, a maladaption. Um, and I think it needs work. And I think for the next 50 years, I mean, it's a long time, but you know, in terms of what Congress can do, trying to balance those interests, trying to get towards a, uh, a meaningful um, process whereby, you know, in Madison's terms, we can refine and enlarge the public views uh, by passing it through um, our legislature. Right. Well, next question is what book or article most shaped your thinking with regard to a lot of these congressional reform issues? You know, I, I've read a lot about Congress over the years. Um, 
But it's, you know, I guess I would say, you know, it kind of, it depends on when I read it and what's happening in Congress. But I would say the one thing that's been on my mind a lot lately is an older book by uh, Morris Fiorina, um, who's probably better known nowadays for his writings about the culture wars and, and ideology. But he wrote a book in 1977 called The Congress, The Keystone of the Washington Establishment. And it's a, it's a very kind of nat, uh, rational choice view of, of what makes Congress function. Like, what are the incentives Congress has and why and how does that shape its behavior? And, you know, it, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, it's not exactly earth shattering in terms of its conclusions, but it does paint a picture of Congress in the 1970s that I think has been a useful reference point for me to thinking about it today. Back in the 1970s, you know, one thing that hasn't changed between now and then is the incentive of a congressperson is re-election. Uh, that's, that's Fiorina's viewpoint, uh, and it seems fairly borne out in his examination of, of congressional behavior. But in looking at, at, at what shapes the behavior of a congressperson, their goal is re-election, but the question is, how do they define what it takes to get re-elected? And in the 1970s, even then, uh, Fiorina, in terms of like looking at activities as being, you know, profitable or unprofitable towards the goal of getting reelected, uh, legislation tended to be fairly unprofitable for a, a member of Congress because the credit that they got, particularly if it was a national kind of goal, like working on social security reform, the credit they got was fairly diffuse. It didn't actually do a lot for them back in the district, you know, where the district is really concerned about very local issues. You know, the, it takes a lot of time and expertise to work on a national issue. And if you can shepherd it through, that's great for you and your party and the nation, but it's not necessarily great for you in terms of the district and getting reelected. Moreover, every time you take a vote, you stake out some territory where you're going to please some people and you're going to not please some people. And so the more you legislate, the more of a target you paint on your back come election time to say you voted this way and you should have voted this way. So how did Congress deal with that? Well, they did a lot of casework, a lot of constituent work. Congress people in the 1970s spent a lot of time, you know, unsticking the bureaucracy. They spent a lot of time, you know, dealing with individual requests from the district. They basically were there to, you know, represent their constituents in a very fundamental way as term in terms of like case service. Like we're working for you to help you navigate the benefits and difficulties of the federal government. And this was a very high profit kind of activity that Congress members um, undertook. The reason I'm thinking about it so much today is, you know, when I think about profit and reelection, you know, casework doesn't seem to be as important as it was. Legislating seems even less important than it was. And it seems like what, what we're left with in a lot of ways is, you know, your fealty to a narrower and narrower conception of a kind of partisan or ideological point of view. Um, that the profit is made in terms of, you know, your ability to get sound bites, to be on cable news, to um, stake out, you know, um, hot takes from your partisan point of view about, you know, how you're taking on the opposition and fighting, you know, on behalf of your interests. In an extremely ideological and a very um, untransactional way. And that's another reason why I'm so interested in earmarks is that I think the incentives have changed to where the sort of transactional nature of, of Congress, where it's like, we're here to give people what they need. 
right? You know, we're trying to define like what legitimate needs are and trying to address those needs in, in a way that's appropriate. That doesn't have to do with like the nature of the regime or some kind of narrow ideological conclusion that cannot be compromised about, right? Transactional politics is, is really defined by a kind of compromise, you know, sort of what do you need? What do I need? Let's compromise to find how we can get most of what we want. Ideological considerations are binary. I get everything or I get nothing. And this has really cast a pall on the ability, I think, of Congress to legislate because there's no room for compromise. There's nothing to talk about. It's really just more, how do we get more of our people in Congress? And once we do, what can we impose on the other side? Uh, the, the consideration is, you know, what form of majority tyranny can we impose if we can get a partisan governing majority to do so? Um, and I think that has had a very negative effect. And it does, I think, gradually, increasingly lead each you know, successive turn of the wheel where Republicans or Democrats are in charge. It creates the incentive, like I say, I think, to create a kind of either you know, inability to govern or a kind of majority tyranny. And there's not much in between. And that's, that's, I think that's very corrosive uh, for American politics. So last question is really just about your future plans uh, on the research and on the teaching. So can you walk us through what you have in the, in the hopper? Sure. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm continuing to work with a group in Washington to look at the, um, the effects of reintroducing earmarks into Congress. Has it changed, you know, congressional behavior to any degree? Um, you know, how is the money being spent? Who's getting it? What, what is it paying for? Um, examining the process, what reforms may yet be uh, required, um, how well are the ones that they've adopted working, basically trying to build a, a, you know, a research agenda around earmarks so that Congress can understand how they're working and um, whether or not they're benefiting uh, in the ways in which we imagine them to. So that's, that's a project um, that's ongoing. Um, Another project I have relates to elections. I'm, um, the Policy Lab undertook a project way back in 2020 about how well states were prepared to deal with elections emergencies like the pandemic. And our research question has evolved into um, what does access to voting, what effect does access to voting have on turnout? because it's been a, a, a hot button issue in state capitals and in Washington, DC, um, you know, how, should we roll back access that was expanded during 2020? You know, what are the concerns about um, the legitimacy of elections or the integrity of elections in terms of, you know, widening uh, access? And is there a sort of like, um, um, you know, what effects does increasing access have on turnout, not only in it, the degree in which people turn out, but does, are there, is there any partisan side that's advantaged by high turnout? And, you know, we, we have a pre preliminary answer to this question, and we're moving in to make some more fine-grained dis causal distinctions about how turnout affects individual choices to participate in elections that um, I hope will help to inform a very polarized discussion, policy discussion about vote access that's happening in Congress and also in the states. Looking forward to seeing the results of that work. So uh, best of luck with it. Um, Thank you. 
Yeah. So, Professor Corso, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. And, uh, you know, looking forward to those results. You know, make sure you publish them. We'll try to get you back on the program at that time and go through them. I really uh, appreciated being able to, to share my perspectives on Congress. I, I hope it was helpful. And, and thanks for this series, uh, because I think you're doing a lot for um, Americans to better understand, you know, Congress and its functioning as an institution and how vital it is and what a centerpiece it is for American democracy. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you.